I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. When I was writing this book, I was looking at the collapse of buildings, at the collapse of surroundings. But then, when the collapse ended, I was very saddened to witness the collapse of uh, humanity. In this episode, I speak with Syrian architect Mara Asabuni. Mara Asabuni was born in home Syria in 1981. Thirty years later, the city was engulfed in the Syrian civil war. Married and with two children, Mara elected to stay in homes. I'm lucky, she says. I didn't have to leave my home. We were stuck there, as if we were in prison. We didn't see the moon for two years. But apart from broken windows, there was no damage. They did, however, face a scarcity of fresh water and food, and the ever-present fear for their lives. Since the ceasefire in 2015, Homs has largely been quiet, but it has fundamentally changed. Much of the old city has been destroyed, and 60% of its other neighborhoods are little more than rubble. The challenge now is to rebuild the city. For Marwa, this raises questions about the very purpose of architecture, who decides what gets built, and how and for whom. Her 2016 book, The Battle for Home, offers answers to these questions, which have been given a new sense of urgency in this phase of the Syrian civil war. Marwa spoke with me from her home. Listeners will hear the call to prayer from outside her window during the first part of our conversation. Thank you, Marwa, for joining me on this podcast. Let's start from the beginning. You were born in Holmes in 1981. What was your childhood like? What was Holmes like then? Well, my childhood was uh, very normal. I'm the biggest uh, daughter of of four, I have three more siblings, and my father uh, is a doctor, and my my mother was a staying home mom who studied biology, and uh, I come from middle class, and uh, I lived in in a neighborhood called the New Homes, because it was, although it it is about seven to ten minutes from from the city center it's uh, separated from from the city by by the river so in that sense it was a new development so it's it's a kind of a modern neighborhood to the city pretty much uh, detached from the city by, by the orchards and the river yeah that sounds beautiful how, how did you come to study architecture without the previous intention i'm afraid because uh, the way things were and to a certain degree still are, uh, we study for our A-level exams. And in the end, uh, our degrees pretty much decide for, for us. I think it's, uh, it's a French system from the ma- French mandate. Uh, and uh, let's say medicine and pharmaceutical industries are the highest degrees. And then comes uh, engineering, so architecture included, like civil engineering, mechanical engineering, etc. And I scored at that uh, level. I see. So my degrees allowed me to, to enter architecture and other engineering faculties. And I chose architecture for for no particular reason. <laughs> How old were you at the time? I was 17 when I entered the uh, the college. I was I was the youngest in my uh, my year. 
but yes, I, I, when I tell this to my children, my daughter would just say, oh, well, you were so naive, mom, because now they, they, they have um, a wider scope towards the world and they know more. What was the city like in terms of its architecture? Uh, it's, it's quite uh, uh, divided, I think, because uh, the old city where the traditional architecture and the, the basic, let's say, core of the city, the, 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 the main character of Homs uh, was uh, enclosed uh, uh, towards the wall of the city, the old wall. And uh, it's a very strange city. If, you, if When I studied architecture and began to look at, at my city from, from the perspective of architecture, it's, it's quite strange because we have two centers and they are separated only by 200 meters so we have two clock towers at the two centers and they are just one street away from each other and it's called the new clock square and the old clock square and <laughs> the old clock square it, it marks the beginning of the of the old city the traditional city which is built uh, in accumulation of different civilizations but in uh, in one uh, uh, material which is the local basalt uh, stones. It's black uh, stone and uh, uh, quite rough. For some edges, they use the the white limestone to give it some some light. Uh, and this is a quite distinctive character. Even in the Syrian uh, context, uh, Homs has a distinct, distinctive character in terms of traditional architecture because of this uh, building material. Uh, in terms of uh, the new clock square, where the, let's say, recent uh, building begins, uh, it's quite uh, colonial in, in character. So the French, uh, French colonial architecture can be seen in the facades of the buildings, uh, the blocks of three to four stories buildings uh, with, uh, with those mixes of, uh, of col French colonial uh, uh, styles and some traditional uh, decorative uh, uh, elements. But then uh, the city began to to have uh, to lose to, to lose uh, the character and lose uh, any charm basically because it's, it begins to to, to look like uh, endless rows of uh, of building blocks that you know has no no distinctive style. Is this something that you recognized when you were in st a student? Is something that caught your eye as a student, or what, what kind of architecture were you looking at? Uh, also, strangely enough, uh, we were at the School of Architecture, we were never instructed to look at our local context. So uh, the five years we sp I spent and my, my colleagues spent in, 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 in the School of Architecture, uh, all the focus was on studying the history of, of Western uh, architecture. We studied the, the the modernism history, and we looked at at the, let's say, brutalism and high tech and uh, or, uh, organic architecture, and all of, all those uh, all those trends and all all those styles that uh, um, you know were westernized in the Western world and uh, the international style were uh, were the focus of uh, of our uh, attention.
Did you have examples of that kind of architecture in homes or was it from photographs and books that you saw that architecture? The period of the 60s and the 70s um, um, was uh, very experimental. Uh, in the whole region, in, for example, in Iraq and in Syria, you can, you, can see, you can see those trends because in that generation, there was so much opening towards the Western world and uh, many of our professors coming from, from those periods of time studied in, in England, for example, and in, in Germany. And they came back with those uh, uh, understandings in mind and have experimented uh, in their uh, local uh, local works. So you have those touches, let's say, of those schools, but you, you don't have like a big examples. So the Civil War broke out in 2011. You were already a practicing architect at the time. What was it like for you as, a, as an architect and as a mother and as a, as a person? I was just starting uh, in my career, I think, because I was still studying for my PhD, which is my first year in PhD, and it was 10 years ago, so I was uh, 29. And um, I was just, you know, a very young architect. So at the time, I haven't accomplished anything, you know, I just, you know, designed a few facades here and there. It was at the beginning of, of me opening up uh, towards my, my future and finding where, you know, the next step would be. So it was quite frustrating from this point of view. As a mother, also was very, also big pressure because my children were five and three. So my youngest uh, never saw a city with, without war. And it was very difficult to explain to him. Sometimes it's just heartbreaking because he was watching TV and he'd ask, ask us, do they have war here? Do they have war here? As if he cannot imagine any place that people live in peace. Uh, but luckily, um, he grew up uh, fine from this stage and, and uh, had a more normal childhood. What was it like to celebrate the Arab Spring? I suppose you did celebrate the Arab Spring. What was it like in the transition from the Arab Spring to the Civil War? Well, frankly, I didn't celebrate anything. <laughs> Let's say I, I didn't buy the idea of an Arab Spring. Uh -huh. why, why not? Because it seemed so, so superficial. In homes or in Syria or in the region? In the region, yes. It seemed as if, you know, a burst, you know, because as part of this frustrated young Arab generation, I realized how, how things were and the, the blocked uh, horizons that were, we were facing. But it seemed as if uh, a bubble of anger that had burst and it had no, no vision, no answer of what's next. Yeah. And how did Holmes respond to the outbreak of the civil war? How different was it from in Damascus or Aleppo? Well, Homs was the first city to erupt in violence for start. And Homs was called the, the capital of the revolution. So um, Homs basically held the flag of the, the demonstrations and, and the so-called revolution. And when did the siege of Homs start? At the very beginning of the revolution? Well, no, because 
things progressed from different place to different place with different rhythm. So, for example, certain neighborhoods were designated as dangerous or or violent before others. And uh, then, you know, life stopped, I think, in 2013. And the peak of violence happened in 2013 and 2014. Can you describe it for us? I mean, how did you get drinking water? How, how did you live? How was your family living? Were they safe? How did you get all the basic necessities of life during the siege? Well, I have to begin from the location of our home because we lived at the battle line. So we were caught in the middle, in the crossfire between the armed forces of the opposition and uh, the, the army, the official army. And they were shooting at each other and we were in the middle. The row of our building and, and you know, the, the buildings next to it and the street ahead of us and behind us where, uh, where this battle line, where the crossfire happened. It was very intense and uh, we, we had it all, except from bombing, we had it all in, in our apartment. Uh, so we had the, the strain bullets, we had the tanks uh, marching below our window, we had the tank stationed at the end of our street so the windows will fall uh, and uh, the whole building will shake up and it was pretty, pretty intense. Then mortar phase happened where mortar uh, uh, missiles landed just, you know, in, and, and this, this stretched over years. So, so it's two to three years of this, you know, on and off. Did you stay in, in your house? Yes, yeah. we, we never left. We never left for one day doing that. How did you get food and how did you get water? And yeah, like I said, it's uh, there were different phases, so different necessities will come on and off. So you never have it all. So uh, it's uh, one week of no electricity, and then electricity will come and water will disappear, and then the cooking gas will disappear and the water will come, and <laughs> the internet will go for two or three months and then the electricity will will come. So it's just, you know, sometimes we joked about it. Those those amenities cannot, you know, face each other. So it's, it's a constant pressure on the, the household. You have to invent uh, daily ways of coping. And in terms of food, uh, the prices went very high and everything was very expensive and we were out of work for two years. So there's also uh, additional uh, pressure, but we were never hungry, for example. We were fortunate enough to have food on our table every day, but men had to spend the whole day in the job of securing the, let's say, the necessities. For example, my husband would go and, and line for two or three hours to get bread then he would go for a different place. And this is literally a life-threatening uh, adventure that you, you cross from uh, one street to another to, to get something, to get uh, you know, milk or, I don't know, meat or something, because there were snipers that were from the two conflicting parties and uh, each sniper would, uh, would shoot at uh, a at certain uh, stage at people. Yeah. So in the midst of all of this, you decided to write a book, the book that we're talking about today called The Battle for Home. That's H-O-M-E, Home. 
What made you decide to write a book in response to the situation in which you found yourself and you and your family? Well, uh, as I said, I was studying for my PhD, so I was continuing to do the research and keeping myself busy and, and studying and translating texts and reading books. And, and my PhD was about stereotyping Islamic architecture. So I was, I, was, I was looking at the local architecture and the architecture of our region, trying to be, you know, uh, uh, having this uh, detached perspective and looking at this architecture from from the perspective of somebody who is who has nothing to do with it the surroundings that I was living in compelled me to look at it to think about it to reflect on it and uh, having my husband also as an architect uh, our conversations uh, revolved around the situation and the question of why certain neighborhoods had a certain behavior attached to them and uh, is it a stereotypical point of view to look at, to attach certain labels? And why would uh, a group of people belonging to a certain place have a common behavior or a common reaction to events that is quite different from other? And uh, I only had to look out of my window to find the answer. And that was the motive to, to write the book. And my husband said, well, you have to write this. And you said that to me and you have to write it down. I think it will be a good book. And so the credit goes to him in that respect of encouraging me to write the book. Well, you write that there is an inescapable correspondence between architecture of a place and the character of the community that is settled there. Which comes first, the architecture of the place or the character of the community? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a hen-egg question because the two make a cycle. So one affects the other. But of course, human comes first. So we, we decide uh, the community, the character of the community, decide the kind of architecture. But then the architecture you build also channel the behaviors and the interactions and all of that. And so the character will be affected correspondingly. Yeah, you write at the same time that the failure to create architecture that can constitute a home for its users stems from a loss of identity. Mm -hmm. Explain that to us, how the two are so closely related, and what was the loss of identity that you were experiencing and reacting to in homes? Well, identity uh, for me, just it's, it's a set of values uh, that can express uh, our emotions and our aspirations and and basically our perspective toward life and, and the universe. Those values, they make their way into our built environment. And when one looks at an environment that has no character and has basically uh, failed to bring people together and to express people's views and to express people's uh, aspirations. Uh, this failure, correspondingly, um, just a symptom of the loss of those values. Let's, let's put that in, in context like you asked about, about homes. I think in the Arab region, we have an identity crisis. And this is something that is spoken about and, and discussed in the works of, uh, of many uh, intellectuals and, and researchers. So it's, it's no secret that we have an identity crisis, like the one I was having when I was a teenager. You know, I, I was uh, westernized because 
the place I came from had no clear set of values that I could identify myself with. So it's the identity crisis that we struggled with after the colonization of our region that, you know, the, the Sykes-Picot pact that divided our region into different countries with uh, different loyalties. And from basically the 19th and 20th centuries till this day, we live in a series of crises and we seem uh, not to find our way out. You write about a social and economic dysfunction, a culture of favoritism and bribes, as leading to two choices, either the way out to the Gulf or the West, or the way in to corruption and degradation. What brings that about, and how simple or how complicated is that culture? Is it something that is directly related to the condition of the Arab identity that you're talking about, or is it something that's generally humankind? Well, uh, it's both. I think we have this legacy, the colonial legacy, where uh, dysfunctioned institutions were created basically to keep the system weak. But I don't believe that we can blame it all on, on Western uh, interference. I think we also chose this way, this culture of favoritism and bribes, because this is the, uh, the official way of, uh, of functioning in our institutions. Mind you, not only the public institutions, but also the private institutions. So this gives you an indication that it's, it's not something that's uh, not related to people's choice. Um, it's an official failure, but also it's a failure of society. So I'm just trying to keep this straight, this image of the city in my mind. So you have the souk itself with its 4,000 shops, the civic gathering place, and you've got these two great historic sites of the mosque and the church. And then you have these modern towers of clock towers, one older than the other. But then you have this hotel called the Twin Tower Hotel. How do they all fit together into what is an emerging urban center? They didn't. It just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole mess, a whole big mess made of, of the city and the story that I try to tell in the book that this city had suffered so much of the ill-devised decisions of its uh, leaders and its notable figures because nobody paid attention towards their city basically. Their main uh, focus was uh, making profit and it's very neglected throughout history. That is still mystery to me how this city was destroyed stone by stone uh, intentionally. It's very strange and very interesting that uh, every governor that took rule in, in Homs made a decision from the municipality or the governor or the businessmen to demolish a building in their ruling times. And it doesn't make sense why the city is systematically being deprived of its uh, buildings and its communities and its civic uh, pride even. In the midst of all of this, of course, there is the war raging on. Uh, you write about the Battle of Babi Amir, and your husband was born and raised there. What role did its different religious and ethnic groups play in its urban culture, and how did they figure in the war? They don't have a different religious groups. They are Sunni Muslims. Uh, so let's talk about uh, first the uh, uh, the religious groups, although I don't like the word groups here because it's so segregational. But uh, Homs uh, is a Sunni city by majority, but also has uh, 
in the 20th century, it had uh, a, its third of its population of uh, Orthodox Christians. But then uh, in the 50s and the 60s, when the factories were opening and the whole industrial uh, transition that was happening in, in the country, people from the countryside and mainly from the Alawite uh, section uh, came and uh, settled around the city. But in Baba Amr, although they originally, uh, the people who settled in Baba Amr originally from the villages, they are Sunni, Sunni Muslims, but they are Turkmen, which, uh, which is, you know, the, of Turkish origins. Uh, but I speak about how this, uh, let's say, ethnic uh, difference was uh, never accepted by the city. And I think it's, it's not by the people, because people here, in Syria, we are accustomed to variety. We, we all come from different origins and come from different countries. And it's, uh, you know, an ancient hub uh, of trade and uh, different people learning how to live together. But I think it's like I try to make the case in, in the book. I think it's a, an urban planning issue. I think the way that the city authority decided to keep this uh, neighborhood out of uh, the regulatory uh, plan of the city, keeping it informal, keeping it impoverished, made this uh, segregation between the city as a system and the neighborhoods that try to plug into the city. And Baba Amr was the place where uh, violence erupted. So it's the first place where the first battle in Syria happened. You say that it could have been avoided by a fair form of urbanization. How do you reconcile the basic social and economic needs of a people in times of war with architecture, especially architecture that's contested between the developers and the architects? They don't reconcile. In, in civil war, in, in war, you are in a survival battle. You need to keep your life and nothing else. So uh, you cannot reconcile. It's just... Uh, it's too late to think about architecture during the war. But in the book, I speak about thinking about architecture before the war, before the moment of eruption. You say that Damascus differs from homes not only architecturally and demographically, but also psychologically, that the buildings, streets, and trees were not just the components of the urban environment, they were the very soul of the city. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, Damascus, of course, is uh, is considered uh, the jewel of Syria because all the weight of of, uh, of culture and, uh, and administration and wealth is centralized in Damascus, and Aleppo comes after that, and then the rest of Syria comes. Uh, we are not discussing homes here alone. In the battle for home, we are discussing, I think I discussed a wider issue, which is, you know, it's, it's the way our built environment led us to deadlocks. But in Damascus, the situation is slightly better because they have more order, they have more wealth. Uh, the government is monitored there and uh, they have uh, a slightly more functioning system uh, of the other cities, because uh, there is also uh, the, the international eye. They, they have the embassies, they have the cultural centers, and all of this plays, uh, plays a role of keeping uh, more of an uh, of, uh, ordered way of life. 
Does the central authority of Damascus aid in situations in homes or in Aleppo, or are they isolated one from another? They isolate one from the other. For example, uh, in Homs, the governor is uh, should not be uh, a person from Homs. He should be someone who is, you know, from a different city. So he is never close enough to the problems of the city. And this makes a huge difference when those who are in charge are from the city and they are concerned about the city. And the final chapter in your book is titled The Battle for Continuity. And you begin the chapter with a story of how you and your husband raced to get your PhD uh, filed for, in, in the school, the university. Tell us about that story and how important that story is to your thesis in the book. Uh, well, it's a story about fighting uh, or uh, breaking dreams, I think, because there are many people had uh, sim very similar experiences like mine, but they didn't have the chance to tell the story. Uh, basically, I was, I was in, in the university, there were um, a clique of people, like uh, professors who didn't want me to, to take my PhD. They didn't want, a, uh, I think, a, a competitor. <laughs> or they, they don't like it when a person, you know, says very loud and clear. They, they want uh, more of a type that could say yes about things in a softer way, let's say. So there was a group of professors who didn't want uh, the defense uh, hearing to, to happen. And uh, they made every attempt to, to postpone this. And they stretched the, the process for me over a year, just, you know, postponing one meeting to the next week and then next week and the other. And at the end of the year, that was one year delay of uh, delayed meetings. I just, you know, uh, I just had it because uh, my professor, the, the professor who is supervising my thesis, he said, well, Marwa, you have two hours to come and otherwise they will postpone the hearing to after the, the holidays. It was the end of Ramadan and afterwards there will be a, a long uh, period of holidays, uh, the Eid holiday. So basically, I had to run to the stationery shop where you just, you know, print because we had no electricity and we had uh, no printers. And I found one place where a printer was operating and he just, you know, uh, <laughs> mixed inks uh, from old bottles. And it just, you know, it was so improvised because this was in the height of, uh, of the conflict. Uh, it, was, uh, it was very dangerous and we had no taxis in, in the streets. So it was very dangerous even to take a taxi because you could be kidnapped. Uh, I basically met my husband at the stationery shop and then I had to run with my son. Oh, was it my son or my daughter? I don't know. <laughs> I had a child with me and we had to run uh, like two kilometers in, in uh, we were fasting and I was so thirsty and just so hot and we had to run towards the college and when I arrived there everybody was leaving and I made it like in movies I made it like five minutes before they close everything up and then my professor came out of the dean's office and he said well Marwa this man, one of those professors, he just, you know, uh, made an objection and he went to his home. Now it won't happen. And I was so devastated. I just sat on the floor and started crying. But then uh, something 
I don't know, it's just, you know, beyond my, my control. It just so miraculously happened. After the holidays, this professor was moved from his position. It had nothing to do with me, but I allowed the, the defense to happen. And finally, I got my PhD. Gosh, it's like an allegory of the triumph of ambition over frustration. <laughs> yes. But that, the final chapter, the heart and soul of your book, and your, therefore of your thesis, is dealing with the continuity of culture and of style in architecture. You, you asked the fundamental question, what exactly is Islamic architecture? How did you answer it as a student, and how do you answer it now? Well, I think I came to the conclusion that Islamic architecture is beyond the stereotypical uh, image that we have of certain elements incorporating certain elements like uh, an arch or a dome or decoration or whatever that is a stereotypical image of Islamic architecture to the wider conception that Islamic architecture is the manifestation and the expression of the Muslim mind and its understanding of the universe. So basically, when you look at Islamic architecture, because it's so wide and in, in region, geographical region from east to west and from north to, uh, to, to south of the Muslim empire when during history and stretched over 11 century. Uh, so even for researchers, it's very difficult that they could find one string that could connect all these different regions and the different cultures and different expressions towards the, the style that they all agree that there is a style that you can call Islamic. Uh, and from my point of view, it's the interaction with the universe because in Islam, you identify yourself with how you look at the creator and how you look at the universe that he had created. And from this point of view, you can look at the creations of those builders and understand the Islamic architecture. But there's a controversy around the naming of it. You, you speak about the heart of its style and its meaning and purpose, but there's a controversy that you point out in the book about the naming of it, whether it's called Islamic or Moorish or Mohammedan or even Arabic or Turkish or Ottoman. Tell us about that controversy and how does it play itself out? I think the controversy it is between Islamic and Arabic because all the other meanings are just you know synonymous to the same, either to their religion or the language. So I believe that the language is like architecture, is an expression, it's another manifestation, it's not the core understanding. Because uh, religion is a value, and like I said, it's a way of understanding your place in the universe and, and how you react to the universe. Whereas in language, it's a way of communication, like architecture, it's a way of communication as well. So I, I think of language as, as the vessel of expression, whereas the religion is, is the core value that drives the expression. In your book, you are critical of uh, the architecture of Zaha Hadid, who's most often identified as a British Iraqi architect. You refer to some of her decorative elements as bubbles and gadgets, just as you refer to the architecture of Dubai as looking like a shelf of perfumed bottles. Mm -hmm. Is there no room for the contemporary architecture to be um, more experimental, let's say, more engaging with the West? Of course there is a room. The thing is, um, I'm critical of 
these types of architecture because they, I believe they abandoned the idea of value and they focused on standing out as the sole value of their creations. So those creations uh, never attempted to make the effort, from my point of view, to reach out to their surroundings, to their communities and to, you know, add any, uh, any value beside of attracting attention to their creations. Whereas uh, the architecture that I believe that we all should aim at and, uh, and defend is, uh, is the architecture that uh, digs deeper and try harder to reach out to, to the human value that we have. And that's, that's when you can call an architecture sensitive or uh, communal or moral. So that comes from a reflection and then uh, an attempt to express or you know, stretch a hand towards this, uh, this value. Now you conclude your book with a very bold statement. You say that you build by making a livable home for both rich and poor, Muslim and Christian, owner and tenant, adult and child, in which parts, localities, functions, and businesses are woven together in a continuous fabric and in which a shared moral order emerges of its own accord. You said in your book that you hope for that, your book was published four years ago in 2016. Do you still have that hope today? And is your hope based on the same principles today as it was then? Well, my hope, to be honest, uh, has uh, been, <laughs> let's say, diminished to a certain degree. Just, you know, it got very small during those uh, four years. And I'll tell you why. Because uh, uh, when I was having this hope, when I was writing this book, I was looking at the collapse of buildings, or the collapse of surroundings. But then, when the collapse ended, I was very saddened to witness the collapse of uh, humanity. And uh, in this sense, uh, my hope was affected. It was, I, I think it will never go away because uh, I believe that uh, as long as we live, we, we must have hope. I do have the same principles. I still believe in the same message, but I think we have a longer way to reach those uh, principles now. Thank you, Mara, for your time on this podcast today. We wish you and your family the very best in terms of safety and security and happiness and good health. So thank you again very much. Thank you so much, and I wish you the same. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman, with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>